Hi there. Welcome to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson, and this is a podcast dedicated to helping community financial institutions master the art of fixed income investments. If you're working for a community bank or credit union and you have responsibilities for the investment portfolio, you've come to the right place. I'll be your personal investment guide as we help you boost your fixed income investment knowledge, level up your portfolio management skills, and help you gain the know-how you need to help your institution achieve its financial goals. In this episode, we're going to talk about bond yield. It's one of those things that drives much of the investment decision-making process. We're going to explore what it is, how it works, and the different ways that we measure it. We've got a lot of territory to cover. You ready to go? Let's get started. Hey there, welcome back to Bond Investment Mentor. I'm your host, Chris Nelson. Today, we're going to explore one of the key metrics that fixed income investors use in analyzing securities and managing portfolios, and that is the concept of yield. Today, we're going to start off with the basics of bond yields. We'll dig into that here in just a bit. In addition, we're going to talk about the FOMC announcement this week, and I want to tell you about a Bloomberg screen resource that can help you if you're trying to get detailed payment information for a mortgage security in your portfolio. I also want to give you a heads up about a recent rule change from the Small Business Administration that will be of interest to investors in fixed-rate SBA pools. So let's start our episode off with the big news that's coming out of the Federal Reserve. In case you missed it, the FOMC announced that it is taper time, or almost taper time, I guess. Uh, The FOMC indicated in their announcement this week that the Federal Reserve could begin reducing their purchase of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities as soon as their next meeting, which will be in early November. Now, details haven't been released yet on how they might proceed. The current expectations are that any reductions in purchases will be somewhere on the neighborhood of $10 billion in treasuries and $5 billion in mortgage-backed securities. One question that's out there is, will these reductions be on a per-meeting basis or will they happen monthly? Now, one thing of note is that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell said during the press conference following the FOMC meeting that a process that, quote, wraps up around the middle of next year is likely to be appropriate. So based on that, it kind of sounds like they could lean toward uh, making monthly moves here, but we'll have to wait and see. In addition to the announcement, they also updated their survey of economic projections, uh, otherwise known as the dot plot. And uh, in reviewing that, half of the officials expected the first increase in short-term interest rates to happen by the end of 2022. That's a, a change and an increase in the consensus from the June meeting, which showed that the first move by the Fed would happen possibly in early 2023. So they've pulled it in a bit. Now, what could change all of this in terms of what the Fed might do? Well, certainly there's been a focus on employment. And so uh, a weaker employment picture in the coming months between now and the end of the year could certainly change how they approach things. Uh, Any sort of economic slowdown that's brought on by COVID-related issues, for example, could also play a factor here. Uh, And of course, any sort of financial market disruption can always 
you know, all bets are off at that point. So we'll have to wait and see. Now, what about inflation? The FOMC announcement acknowledged what it termed elevated inflation levels currently, but they still are beating the transitory drum. They uh, are, are really assuming that that elevated inflation is due to transitory factors. The economic projections did show that several Fed officials had increased their inflation expectations, mostly for this year, before seeing inflation ramp down in future years and closer to the Fed's 2% target rate. Stephen Goldstein over at Market Watch had an interesting take that uh, I saw this week. And in his article, he noted that the big issue confronting the Fed is not the taper, but it's the fact that demand has recovered more quickly than supply. And that is creating all sorts of shortages as companies are trying to figure out how to get parts, how to get the workers and so forth. And, you know, his concern is that these shortages threaten the economic cycle. Uh, One thing he mentioned in his article that I found interesting is that the word shortage has received the most mentions in the Fed's beige book uh, since 1973. So this is definitely a factor going on right now. And so while the world is focusing on the concept of the Fed's taper activities, it's really worth noting and paying attention to what happens in terms of this supply shock and this shortage issue that we're seeing and how that plays out as we roll into next year as well. Now, in terms of the market response to the Fed's announcement, Fed fund futures uh, immediately began pricing in a first move uh, in short-term interest rates by the Fed uh, in December. It was factoring in an early 23 move, but it is now December 2022. The yield curve initially flattened Uh, Shorter-term treasury rates increased to their highest levels since July. They moved more rapidly as the market factored in a move uh, by the Fed sooner rather than later. Uh, And so we saw that shift yesterday. But then longer rates also joined in uh, today with the 10-year hitting a rate of about 1.42% as I'm recording this uh, the day after the FOMC announcement. So there's certainly expectations that rates could move higher even on the long end of the curve. But here's something to think about. Is it possible that long-term rates could actually remain low once the tapering gets underway? And the answer is quite possibly yes. Uh, It's possible that if investors in other areas of the capital markets, for example, the stock market, decide that as the Fed begins to taper its purchase activity and ultimately begins raising rates, we could see those investors pull back to the safety of treasuries in a traditional flight to quality in an effort to reduce their exposure to those markets. And that could actually cap how high longer interest rates could move. Uh, So we'll have to wait and see how that happens. Uh, A lot of moving parts here, definitely more to come. And we'll certainly be watching as we move into November to see if the Fed does follow through uh, with uh, actually starting a taper then or if it gets pushed out just a bit. I was talking with a client recently about the investment portfolio, specifically their mortgage-backed securities holdings. They were interested in trying to find a way to verify the monthly paydowns of principal and interest that they are receiving. And the good news is that there's a Bloomberg screen for that. 
So I want to tell you about the Bloomberg Paydown Information Screen, otherwise known as the PDI Screen. And the PDI Screen provides a monthly breakdown of information related to mortgage pools. Uh, among the information it contains is the monthly pool factor for the pool that you're looking at, the current or outstanding face amount after each principal paydown, and the principal and interest payment for each month. It's broken out month by month. What's also great is that you can enter the original face amount of your investment and the PDI screen will calculate and then display the monthly information based on your investment amount. It's a simple way to get customized paydown data on a mortgage-backed security. And by sharing this information with my client, they were able to get the historical information that they needed to do their verification. Now, if you don't have a Bloomberg terminal, you can ask your broker to grab a screenshot for you. Just ask them for the PDI screen for your mortgage QCIP number or pool number. Either one will work. And be sure to ask them to grab the information from the paydown tab. The screen has different tabs on it, and you want to ask for the paydown tab to make sure that you get the information that you need. If you'd like more information on the PDI screen, I've written a brief article about it. You can head over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash PDI if you're interested in learning more. And I'll leave a link to it here in the episode notes as well. If you're an investor in fixed rate SBA pools, here's something of interest that I wanted to pass along. The Small Business Administration, the SBA, recently issued a rule change related to loans that are part of its 504 loan program. Uh, this change could have an impact for investors in fixed-rate SBA pools. Before I get into the details, let me take a step back for those of you that might not be as familiar with these securities. What we're talking about are SBA participation notes, otherwise known as SBAPs. These are pooled securities that are made up of fixed-rate SBA loans from the 504 loan program, which are used to provide long-term financing to small businesses for improvement of land and buildings, equipment, and so forth. Because the SBA guarantee carries the full faith and credit backing of the U.S. government, SBAPs, like SBA floaters, have a 0% risk weighting. So they're very high-quality that way. The SBA pools these loans into securities that have either a 10 or a 20-year maturity. 10-year pools are made up of machinery and equipment loans, while 20-year pools are made up of real estate loans. And in addition to the fixed coupon rate, SBAPs pay down their interest on a semi-annual basis. So it's a little different than your usual residential mortgage or other commercial mortgage securities. So that's fixed rate SBAPs in a nutshell. So a few weeks ago, the SBA put out an interim rule change in the Federal Register, and I'll put a link to this in the episode notes, and they also implemented this rule immediately. They were able to do that under the same COVID-related legislation that brought us things like the Paycheck Protection Program. The rule change revised the amounts of existing indebtedness that could be refinanced, and it also allowed some loans to be refinanced more quickly. Now, because of these changes, investors in SBAPs could see higher principal paydowns on their securities in the coming months. Because this rule is new, we don't really know yet how things are going to play out in terms of prepayments. But if you hold SBAPs in your portfolio, it may be worth checking to see when the next principal payments are due and monitoring how the bonds behave going forward just to kind of keep an eye on things. 
Okay, now we're going to explore one of the key metrics that fixed income investors use in analyzing potential and existing investments, and that is the concept of yield. So let's start at the beginning with a definition. What is yield? Yield is defined as the required interest rate that an investor desires based on current market conditions and comparable bond offerings. It represents the percentage rate income return that an investor will earn on their investment. In the world of finance, yield is also considered the internal rate of return when evaluating an investment. If you think back to the finance classes that you had in college, you may remember discussions about calculating the net present value or the NPV of a project or an investment. The internal rate of return was used when you were discounting the cash flows back to the present value. So that's the yield and the internal rate of return. Now, there are two important factors that I also mentioned in the definition that I gave before. The first is that the yield is based on the current market conditions. We need to start somewhere, and that's usually with where the market is trading at that moment. The other factor is that the yield is based on comparable bond offerings. What do I mean by that? By comparable, we're talking the same maturity, the same credit quality, and option-free, no embedded options or optionality in the bond. That's another topic we'll cover in a future episode. When we're evaluating the yield on a fixed income security, we're considering what percentage we'll earn on our investment given the current market and in comparing bonds that have the same attributes. Is the yield the same as the return on an investment? Not really. As I mentioned before, yield focuses on the income and the earnings from the investment. And it's a forward-looking measure as you are considering the future earnings of your investment. On the other hand, an investment return reflects on the financial gain or loss on the investment over time. It considers the income earned, but it also will include things like capital gains, capital losses, and the like. And unlike yield, which is a forward-looking measure, return is a backward-looking metric as it evaluates how an investment has performed over time to the current date. What if we compare a bond's yield and its coupon rate? Are they the same? Well, they could be, but it depends on the purchase price of the security. A bond's coupon rate is the percentage rate of interest that the investor receives as income. It's based on the face amount of the bond, and that rate doesn't change. A bond's yield, however, can change based on the price that an investor pays for the security. The only time that a fixed income investment's coupon rate and yield would be equal is if an investor pays par, or the actual face amount for the security. Otherwise, the coupon rate and the yield will differ. The relationship between yield and price is an inverse one. What that means is that as a bond's price increases, its yield will decrease. And if a bond's price falls, the yield will rise. So your yield will vary from the coupon rate depending on the price of the bond. So now we know what yield is. Next question, how do we measure it? The answer is... It depends. As you work with your institution's investment portfolio, you're likely to come across several different measures of yield. They're all the same in that they're measuring income or earnings, but they're also slightly different in how they calculate it. So let's go over each of them. 
The most common yield measure you'll come across is yield to maturity. This may also be referred to as the book yield because it's based on the book price or the price that you pay for the security. The yield to maturity is the annual rate of return that an investor earns on a fixed income investment. But for that to happen, there are three key assumptions that must hold. The three assumptions are these. First, the bond is held to maturity. That's why it's called yield to maturity, right? The second assumption is that all income is reinvested over the life of the bond at the yield to maturity rate. And the third assumption is that all principal payments are made exactly as scheduled. We're talking no optionality, kind of that plain vanilla bullet bond type structure. If any of these assumptions fail to hold, then technically you don't earn the yield to maturity. So if you sell the security before final maturity, or you don't reinvest the income, which usually doesn't happen, or you introduce bond call options or mortgage prepayment into the mix, it makes the cash flows uncertain and your mileage, or in this case, your yield may vary. So with all the reasons that the yield to maturity calculation doesn't provide an entirely accurate result, does it mean that it's a useless measurement or a waste of time? Well, no, not really. While it may not be a perfect metric, yield to maturity allows you to make a direct comparison between different securities, taking into account different coupons and prices. It combines all the cash flows into a single statistic, and it allows a quick apples-to-apples comparison of the potential return you could earn on your investment based on what might be. However, it's probably best not to use yield to maturity as your sole measurement for evaluating fixed income securities, and I'll be covering some of these other factors in future episodes. As I mentioned earlier, yield to maturity is the metric that you'll most likely run into, but there are other yield measures that I want you to know about. The first one is the current yield, which is also sometimes referred to as the market yield. The difference between the current yield and the yield to maturity is the price that is used to calculate the measure. The current yield is based on the current market price of the fixed income security, which may be different from the book price that an investor paid at the time of purchase. So current yield only matters to you as you're evaluating an investment. Once you've made the purchase, it's all about the book yield. Another yield that you may run into is the yield to call, This is something that you'll see if you're investing in bonds with call features. The yield to call is calculated using a bond's call date instead of its final maturity. If a bond has multiple calls, then the yield calculation is determined based on the first call date, although it can be calculated to subsequent calls as well. Something to keep in mind is that the yield to call and yield to maturity on a callable bond may differ. If you pay par for the callable bond, then the two yields will be the same. However, if you purchase a callable bond at a premium or a discount to par, as I mentioned earlier, then the yield to call will vary from the yield to maturity. This is due to the bond accounting rules, which amortizes a bond's premium, or it accretes a bond's discount, to the call date instead of going to the maturity date. Because of this, the time to account for the pricing difference is compressed because of the earlier date and results in a different yield-to-call rate. If you purchase the callable bond at a premium, then your yield-to-call will be lower than the yield-to-maturity. On the other hand, if you paid a discount for the callable bond, then the yield-to-call will be higher than the yield-to-maturity. 
If you're trying to analyze the different yields on a callable bond, I'd recommend using Bloomberg's YTC screen, it stands for yield to call, as it will provide you with both the yield to call and the yield to maturity in one place. And that's a screen that you can ask your broker for if you don't have a Bloomberg terminal. A third yield measurement that you will hear mentioned is yield to worst, which is the lowest possible yield that an investor can receive on a bond. This is again used with callable bonds, especially if the bond has multiple call dates. In this case, the yield is calculated to the security's final maturity and to each of the call dates. The lowest yield is selected, and this is referred to as your yield to worst. And finally, there's tax equivalent yield. This is a measure that is used with tax-exempt municipal bonds. If you invest in tax-exempt munis, then you know that the income you receive is exempt from federal and, in some cases, state income taxes. Because of this, comparing the quoted yield on a tax-exempt bond to a taxable issue is a little bit of an apples-to-oranges thing. The tax equivalent yield adjusts the yield on a tax-exempt muni bond to take into account the tax-exempt treatment of the income. What the tax equivalent yield shows is what the yield on a fully taxable investment would need to be to earn the same after-tax income that a muni bond is generating on a tax-exempt basis. It normalizes the comparison of the bonds so that you have a more accurate comparison. So far, most of what I shared pertains to more traditional bond structures, but yield is important too when it comes to mortgage securities. With MBS pools, the good news is that we're going to be focusing on one yield measure, and that is yield to maturity. That's the good news. The bad news is that the yield to maturity can change on a mortgage security depending on how fast or slow principal prepayments occur. And just like callable bonds, Faster prepayments on a premium bond will lower the yield, while a pickup in principal payments will increase the yield on a discount mortgage pool. The go-to for seeing how the yield changes under different prepayment scenarios with a mortgage security is using one of Bloomberg's yield table screens. So that's an overview of yield, what it is, and how it's measured. As I mentioned, it's one of the essential metrics when you are analyzing fixed income investments, and for many investors, it's the primary driver of their decision-making process. But what's important to keep in mind is that yield is not the only measure that's important. There are other attributes to consider when deciding on an investment, and we'll be covering those factors in upcoming episodes. I hope that you found this information helpful, and if you're looking for more information about this topic and more about fixed income investing and portfolio management, please check out the website, bondinvestmentmentor.com, and there you'll find tips, articles, and resources to help you manage your institution's investment portfolio. You can also learn more there about how we can work together. One of the questions that I've been asked is, I like all the information that you share. Is there a way that I can work with you to become better trained in investments, portfolio management, and how to tie it into the bigger banking picture? Well, if you're new to your role at your financial institution and need help getting up to speed, or you're a community bank or credit union veteran who just wants to be better at what you do, I would welcome the opportunity to be your guide on your professional development journey through a customized, 
personalized one-on-one mentoring relationship. You can find out more by heading over to bondinvestmentmentor.com forward slash mentoring, where you can fill out an application and find out more about working with me directly. So thanks for checking in today. Bond Investment Mentor is written and produced by me, Chris Nelson. The information, views, and opinions expressed during the podcast belong solely to myself. And any ideas and strategies contained with the podcast are for educational and informational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, or legal advice. If you have a question regarding anything that I covered today, or if you have topics or ideas that you'd like me to cover in a future episode, please email me at chris at bondinvestmentmentor.com. Would love to catch up with you. Also, if you haven't already, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can subscribe on any of the major platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or through whatever podcast app that you use. You can also connect with me via social media. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn at Christopher Nelson CFA and on Facebook at Bond Investment Mentor. Would love to hear from you and love to connect. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks for stopping by. Have a good one.